I'm Ann Dart. I'm Tracy Stormy. And I'm Kathy Knight. And together we are... It Was a Dark and Stormy Book Club. A podcast for mystery lovers. Welcome! If you enjoy our show, please consider contributing to the Dark and Stormy Patreon. By becoming a patron, you will help us create better and quality content. There are also benefits to becoming a patron, such as exclusive content and Dark and Stormy merchandise. Become a supporter at patreon.com slash darkandstormybc. Check our website for the link. We appreciate any and all contributions. Thank you. Hello and welcome to episode 117. We have a bonus in Agatha's Footsteps episode this month with Lori R. King. Lori R. King is the New York Times bestselling author of 27 novels and other works, including the Mary Russell, Sherlock Holmes stories, and the Kate Martinelli series. She has won an alphabet of prizes from Agatha to Wolf, been chosen as a guest of honor at several crime conventions, and is probably the only writer to have both an Edgar and an honorary doctorate in theology. She was inducted into the Baker Street Irregulars in 2010 as the Red Circle. The 16th in Laurie R. King's Mary Russell and Sherlock Holmes series called Riviera Gold comes out today. It's summertime on the Riviera, and the Jazz Age has come to France's once sleepy coastline. Mary Russell and Sherlock Holmes find themselves immersed in the social scene of American expatriates who spend their days on the beach and their evenings in villas filled with music and enthralling conversation. And even more enticing is the nearby Monte Carlo, where fortunes are won, lost, stolen, and sometimes hidden away. But despite the luxury and leisure, a new mystery arises. Mrs. Hudson, Russell and Holmes' former housekeeper, hasn't been seen since she fled England under a cloud of murder accusations. But she proves elusive, managing to avoid even the great Sherlock Holmes as he and Russell try to figure out what new trouble she is in. Mary R. King, who is the creator of the wonderful Mary Russell books, Welcome, Lori. Thank you. Thank you, Dark, Stormy, and Night. Yes. (laughs) One of the things that we love best about the Mary Russell books is the fact that you put a very human face on Sherlock Holmes and his relationship with Mary. What made you decide to write this series? Human face on Sherlock Holmes. That's a scary thought, isn't it? It started out with, I wanted to write a sort of coming of age story about a young woman with that extraordinary kind of mind, that Sherlock Holmes mind. And I thought, theoretically, you could have that person be a cop in San Francisco, you could have her be an amateur sleuth in Boston, anything. But I thought it would be really interesting to look at both of them next to each other and to see how they were similar and how they were different. So I plunked her down into his retirement in 1915 with the beekeeper's apprentice. The first few books, he was basically a supporting actor. She was the one who was growing and interacting with him, but the chief interactions with him were when she managed to get the better of him, which were great fun to write. (laughs) But 
At a certain point, I began to be more interested in Holmes as a character and to think about certainly he has had a huge change in her because she's 15 when they meet and the book is now up to 1925, so she is 25. But about four or five books in, I started being interested in him too and thinking about if he had such a huge change on her and such an enormous effect on her future. What change would she have had on him? Because here you have this Victorian detective. When you meet him, he's in his late 50s. He's more or less retired off to the Sussex Downs. And all that stuff is from Conan Doyle's stories themselves. Not the age, but the fact that he retires to the Sussex Downs. That's all off of the Conan Doyle material. But he's not really that old. He's not retired mentally. The stimulation of having this young, challenging mind wakes him up as a person as well as a professional. And that, I think, is, to my mind, where the books have gone into an interesting place, because the two of them are both growing and changing and developing. And certainly part of that is becoming more human, as you say. I love the way you weave true historical characters into your books. How challenging was it to weave real characters like Picasso into your story? Oh, yeah, that's always great fun. One of the first things I do when I choose to write about a place is to look around and see who was hanging around there at the time. When I sent Russell and Holmes to San Francisco, I was delighted to realize that Dashiell Hammett was there and was sort of semi-working for the Pinkerton Detective Agency, though not much. I figured close enough. And so I could make use of him. There's a poet laureate, this madman in Lisbon that I get to use when I send them off to Portugal. In this one, there were a number of real-life characters that I could play with. One of them is this dreadful, dreadful arms dealer who was far too realistic in this day and age to even think about because he shaped World War I and was a huge cause of the devastation. Being an arms dealer, he just sold to both sides and happily boosted them on their way and bought newspapers in order to stir up warmongering. I mean, an awful man. And he's living in Monaco this time. But I also get to play with the Murphy set. Sarah and Gerald Murphy were Americans who befriended all the American artists and writers who landed in Paris after the Great War, partly because it was Paris, partly because it was so cheap in Europe, and partly because they didn't have prohibition. So the Americans just sort of moved in en masse. And Sarah and Gerald Murphy befriended them, discovered the south of France, and how lovely it was in the summertime, because nobody from Northern Europe went there in the summertime. It was far too hot for them. But they bought a house there. They invited their friends, people like Picasso and Hemingway, Fitzgerald, Zelda Fitzgerald. All these people came wandering through. And I thought, I must have the Murphy set. <laughs> it was this kind of balance between Basil Zaharoff, the Russian arms dealer, and Sarah and Gerald Murphy and their influx of artists and writers. It was just such a delight. In your new book, Riviera Gold, you take this book to Monaco. Did you get a chance to go there to research? I was there about 10 years ago, and I'm sure it looked a lot different in the 20s. What inspired you to take the story there? It's one of those things that you stick a phrase in a book, and sort of in the back of your mind, you tuck this thought in of, well, since they've been to Japan, I'll really have to go there sometime myself. And so you plan your entire life around this phrase that's in a book. In a similar way, a couple of books ago, in the one called The Murder of Mary Russell, Mrs. Hudson, their longtime housekeeper, his landlady when he lived in Baker Street, 
has had to flee England. She disappears out of England. Mary Russell is so upset because she can't bear not knowing where Mrs. Hudson is going. And she says, where are you going to go? And Mrs. Hudson says, you know, I've always been fond of Monte Carlo. Well, that was a sort of throwaway line. When I was in Europe a couple of years ago, I thought I really should go, right? So I'd been in Vienna and I flew to the south of France and we went there. It was a hotel that plays a role in Riviera Gold called the Hermitage Hotel. And I stayed there for a couple of nights, which was all I could afford. And I really couldn't afford that because it's just hugely expensive. Most people like us who go to Monaco tend to day trip in from the south of France when they wear it costs them a quarter that amount. But I thought, I really have to stay at least a night or two in this place. And it was just so fabulous because it's just, I mean, it's a different world. You look out the window of your hotel room and there's these ships that if all of your income went just for that ship for the rest of your life, you couldn't even pay for half of it. And yet they're sitting there with nobody on it because the owners are elsewhere. And you think, I will never have money. <laughs> yes, I saw a ship docked there that had a crystal chandelier hanging just over the entryway. <laughs> and I was yeah. like, what? <laughs> with yeah. a helicopter ships, pad on top. <laughs> ships, yeah, ships with helicopter pads on them. I'm not by nature a socialist. I tell you, if I'd been in France at the time of the revolution, I would have set fire to Versailles. <laughs> you know, Versailles would not have been standing when I finished. You look at those ships and you think, you know, there's something wrong with this. <laughs> but that doesn't really enter into the story much other than the fact that Basil Zaharoff controls the world. But yeah, I always go to the places I'm writing about because I don't think you can really set your characters there if you haven't at least wandered through yourself. I have to spend a long time and inevitably I'll find that there was some place I turned out to really need and I didn't get to it. You try your best. It's tough work, but somebody's got to do yeah. it. Yeah. Oh, how we suffer for our art. <laughs> Mrs. Hudson has always been a beloved background character in the Sherlock Holmes stories. And now you've written not one, but two stories that focus on her. And you've kind of finished up telling about her past in Riviera Gold. Will she ever show up in another Mary Russell book? This is always an interesting question, isn't it? I'm not one of those writers who really plans out what she's doing. I don't outline an individual book and I don't lay out the story arc for a series. I'm always astonished when people say, oh, yes, there's going to be 10 books in this series and they're going from here to there and they haven't even finished book one. <laughs> How does your brain work? Because mine doesn't work that way. I would love to do more of Mrs. Hudson. And I think that she probably will, if not do an actual spin-off series, which would be fun. I would like to do her as a reappearing character, perhaps not in England because she would be arrested if she went there. <laughs> I seem to have a number of characters now who are outside of England and keep reappearing. And she's, I think, going to be one of them because I really like writing this old lady character. I had a lot of fun with Mrs. Hudson. She's 69 when you meet her and there's flashbacks to the time when she was in her 20s and she had a wild youth as a number of 69 year old women do which is astonishing <laughs> to think of <laughs> do you three ladies remember the 60s because i do oh <laughs> yes i remember i was right there in the middle of it <laughs> yeah and you look at your grandchildren and think mm, yeah nothing new under the sun so. <laughs> exactly Sir Arthur Conan Doyle's creation of Sherlock Holmes has been used for inspiration for a number of authors, some more successfully than others. 
What do you think is paramount in successfully portraying a new version of Sherlock Holmes? I think one of the reasons why people can write so many slightly different Sherlock Holmes versions is that Conan Doyle's descriptions of Holmes himself are very minimal. It's really interesting when you go in and actually analyze what you know about the character, other than the fact that he's rude to Watson, (laughs) doesn't like women, he smokes too much, that kind of stuff. When you look at what he actually gives way in the stories, there's not an awful lot there, which leaves an awful lot of scope for people like me to come in and say, well, actually, having said that, that I think is sometimes problematic for people who are writing actual pastiches. That is, stories set during the Conan Doyle sequence of stories that the people call that the canon. If you're trying to write an actual pastiche and tucking it in between other adventures, it is difficult because you have to make sure that he doesn't change much at the end of it, simply because he hasn't changed much in the following story in the canon. I come in and because it's 1915 when they meet, when Holmes and Mary Russell meet. Conan Doyle's finished with him. Conan Doyle is completely finished with Sherlock Holmes after the eve of the Great War in 1914. He continues to write stories, but those are all set before that. After the Great War, clearly Conan Doyle could not envision what that huge change in society would do to his detective and just got around the question by not putting him in the post-war era. He writes in the 20s, but they're all set beforehand. I come in and I pick up this aged, damaged, lonely man and give him a person who becomes his apprentice. I think that that enables me to write a different Holmes because he is a different Holmes. Any person who was alive in 1914 when the Great War began is not the same person two or five years later. So any changes in his personality, I think, are easily explained by those circumstances, not by my inability to grasp his personality. And that's my story. I'm sticking to it. (laughs) (laughs) It's like you can say now before the pandemic and after the pandemic, (laughs) I think that you will see a lot of change in people. Yeah. One can hope for the better. Yes. I keep seeing things that make me think, you know, this is really the way things should be done. And things that are very clear saying, this is really not the way things should be. (laughs) Only we can hold on to that afterwards. Well, in addition to your best-selling writing career, you somewhat uncongressly hold an MA and an honorary doctorate in theology. Can you explain how that came to be? And does it help you in any way in your writing? You don't think this is a logical progression? (laughs) (laughs) When I was at university doing my undergraduate work. What interested me was archetypal psychology, Jungian psychology. I did my BA thesis on the role of the fool in Western culture, the holy fool. I then went on and did a master's in Old Testament theology because I thought I really need to know something about where my society came from, where I came from in a religious and theological way. I was never interested in going into the ministry. For one thing, I was married to a man who was ordained, and I thought, I can't inflict two ministers in one family on our children. I was interested in, among other things, the development of 
images and stories and ideas over a lengthy period of time. Because in the Old Testament, you find parts of it that are written a thousand years apart. You find these ideas that are persistent and that keep cropping up and also change, but yet in recognizable ways. That's what interested me. Well, when I finished that, I had two small kids and a husband who was wistfully looking at retirement because my own husband was considerably older than I. And I thought, I can't really justify going and doing an actual PhD because I would have been at least seven or eight years on just the languages for what I wanted to do. While the kids were small, while Noel was finishing up at university, I started writing stories and thought, it's worth a try. I might be able to sell something. I might justify sticking at home and not going back to school. I was very, very lucky in that I sold a book before I had to actually go out and get a job. <laughs> so that's how I started. Having said that, a lot of the, especially the early stories that I did, have themes to do with either religion or theology. I wrote a book in the contemporary Kate Martinelli cop series with a main character who is a holy fool to play the fool. I used my MA thesis material on Monstrous Regiment of Women, the second of the Russell and Holmes series. When Mary Russell meets a woman who is in a religious group in London, this is in the early 20s, turns out to be a mystic. So you have these books that crop up. It's always a tricky thing to use theology and religion because they are so deeply personal to people. You have to be fair on both sides. That is, you can't use the novel that they're in as any kind of a soapbox. That is, you cannot say, this is what you should be believing because that just kills the story dead. However, you have to be able to show why your characters believe this and why they have a passionate attachment to this, that, or the other belief or act. So it makes for another area of human endeavor that you can employ in writing crime fiction. One of the reasons I love crime fiction is that the scope is just enormous. You can write a mystery about stamp collecting, about human trafficking, about an ancient papyrus. It's an interesting genre. Yes, it is. I absolutely enjoyed In the Company of Sherlock Holmes. Would you and Leslie Klinger ever take on another compilation of Sherlock Holmes-inspired stories? Oh, I am so pleased you asked. <laughs> Our fifth one will be published in December. Can you how do you explain Leslie Klinger? Les Klinger is a friend. He is a devout Sherlockian. He's made a literary profession out of annotations. He has the annotated Sherlock Holmes, a three-volume. He has the annotated Dracula, the annotated American Gods. It sits still long enough, he'll annotate it. <laughs> he has so many friends in the mystery world that we started asking them if they would write stories that were inspired by the Sherlock Holmes canon. Now, these are people who don't write Sherlock Holmes stories. And inevitably, they will say, oh, I don't know anything about Sherlock Holmes, really, but I'd love to try. And they will produce these fabulous stories that are either deeply researched or just plain brilliant. The variety is just amazing. So we started out with a study in Sherlock. Then we went to the one you mentioned in the company of Sherlock Holmes. And these tend to come out every couple of years. Echoes of Sherlock Holmes was the third one. For the Sake of the Game was our last one that was about 18 months ago. And this December will be in league with Sherlock Holmes. 
And they all have amazing writers, everyone from Anne Perry to Lee Child to David Morrell. All these people have been allowed to be bribed, bullied, and cajoled into <laughs> writing a story that is somehow linked to the Sherlock Holmes stories, either a character. Some of them are straight pastiches. Some of them are subtle uses of a theme. Some of them will take a very minor character and let them run. Michael Sims wrote one that was from the horse's point of view, Silver Blaze. So <laughs> I hope you enjoy it when it comes out in December. When you think of Sherlock, you always think of the Victorian age. And these are some modern day stories. You get where going and how it's linked to Sherlock. I don't think the pre-orders are up yet. If they are, I haven't seen them. If you keep an eye on my website, down at the bottom of my homepage on the lauriearking.com. I think it's just second in is In League with Sherlock Holmes. And we have a webpage for it, which we will put all the names of the people and stories and order information when that comes in. So if you keep an eye on that, of course, I will mention it in my newsletter before that comes out, too. Wonderful. What about Kate Martinelli? Is she finished? I don't think so. There's five novels, one of which is a sort of mixed novel because it has to do with a Sherlock Holmes story. I wrote a novella and published it in October, I think it was, called Beginnings, which has to do with the death of Kate's younger sister when Kate was an undergraduate student at Berkeley years and years and years and years and years ago, before the first of the novels that she's in. She comes across a piece of information that makes her question her understanding of her sister's death. And that opens up this fairly lengthy novella that I wrote. It sets groundwork for a novel that I haven't written, I haven't contracted, I haven't even thought about really, but will be written at some point, God willing, in the Creekstone Rise. That's how I first met your book with Kate Martinelli. I was hesitant to read Mary Russell when it came out because I I thought, Sherlock Holmes. Yeah. But, oh, I was mitten as soon as I started reading it. <laughs> Bear Gold comes out on the 9th of June, and it's supposed to be out all over. I hear a rumor that the audio will be slightly delayed. I had been told that they finished all the stuff in the studio, and I had been told it was going to be simultaneous, but it may be delayed. I'm not quite sure. It'll be out sometime in June. Who's doing the reading for that? It's through Recorded Books, and it's Jenny Sterling again. Our same oh, okay, good. She's reading. good. I She's really enjoy her. Good. I love Jenny's reading, and I also like her as a person. She's a lovely person. That should be out on June 9th, and I will be doing various online events. I think during that week, I have a Poison Pen live stream event on the Saturday before, which will be online afterwards. And I also have one or two events during that week. Anyone who is interested in seeing me face-to-face rather than just through a microphone darkly, as with a podcast, I will put those various things on the next newsletter. You can sign up. Well, Lori, we thank you so much for talking with us. We are huge fans of all your books. Oh, great. I've personally loved Riviera Gold. I just thought it was so well done. I hope people like it. It's silly and it's light and it's a good beach read. And, you know, I had fun with it because, honestly, we all need a bit of escapism right now, don't we? We do. (laughs) This is a perfect escape. (laughs) If you're not dark or stormy or nightly, you can have fun with Riviera Gold. (laughs) Yes. Lori, we thank you again, and we hope you enjoy the rest of your day. Thank you very much, you three. The Mary Russell 
series is one of my favorites. I can't wait for the next episode. The Beekeeper's Apprentice locked me in really well. The story progresses through the series. It's one of the most well-written mystery series that I can name off of my head. Wow, that's saying a lot. You know, we've read and actually even had on the show different people who have done their version of Sherlock Holmes. And some are amazing. Just when you think that they can't twist it a little different but still maintain the integrity of Holmes, she has done that. It's a little different because Mary Russell is really the protagonist of the book. Sherlock Holmes is sort of a side character. But it has the Holmes vibe, the, even the cadence, I would say, as far as just very well put together mysteries with these other characters that play a part. They travel around. It's a great series. We thank Lori for joining us and we wish her all the best. New and noteworthy. First up is Double Trouble by Gretchen Arthur. It's the ninth book in the Davis Way Crime Caper series. It is being published by Henry Press and it will be available today, June 9th. Davis Way Cole smells T-R-O-U-B-L-E when she's fired from half of her part-time job at the Bellissimo Resort and Casino in Biloxi, Mississippi. Also coming out today on June 9th is Firing Point by Mike Maiden. It's number 29 in Tom Clancy's Jack Ryan universe, number 13 in the Jack Ryan Jr. series. It's put out by G.P. Putnam Sons. Jack Ryan Jr. is out to avenge the murder of an old friend, but the vein of evil he's tapped to may run too deep for him to handle in the latest electric entry in the number one New York Times best-selling series. And I have Death in Her Hands by Otessa Mosfey. I believe that's how you pronounce it. It comes out June 23rd by Penguin Press, a novel of haunting metaphysical suspense about an elderly widow whose life is upturned when she finds an ominous note on a walk in the woods. Trivia! The Cat Who series was written by Lillian Jackson Braun. How many novels in that series did she publish before her death in 2011? A. 74 B. 37 C. 29 or D. 16 And the answer is C. 29 Huh, that's what I would have guessed. But it would have been a total guess. <laughs> <laughs> this week's question. A study in Scarlet by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle spanned two continents. What American group features in this story? A. The Mormons B. The 49ers C. Cowboys or D Native Americans. Good luck. Our newsletter just came out and I hope the ones who have subscribed are enjoying it and we're very excited because our very 
first true crime short story was published in this one. Robin Bearfield sent it to us. She hails from Alaska, and she writes about all kinds of true crime that takes place in Alaska, and it's very interesting. Website is robinbearfield.com. So if you have not subscribed, you might want to get on that, and you can do that by going to our website, which is www.darkstormyvc.com. Don't forget to look at our Patreon. We have lots of nice incentives for people to patronize us, and we appreciate each and every patron. And we're working on some extra content for our patrons. We look for forward to having that extra content out there. So that brings us to the end of another episode. We hope you enjoyed Lori R. King. Hope you'll join us next week. And remember, life would be boring without a little mystery. Bye! Bye.